Once again, to yet another episode of Gillen Roscoe's Bodacious Horror Podcast. I, as ever, am Roscoe, and I'm joined once again by my dear friend, the most bodacious of colleagues, Mr. Gil Rokitansky. Gil, how the devil are you, my friend? I'm awesome. You're, how are you? You're awesome? Uh-huh. Yeah. Got to spend the day today walking about in the sun with a tiny smiling baby. The weather so has been beautiful. It has been a gorgeous day here today. So nice. So nice. Yep. We live in uh, Scotland and it's literally awful all the time. Um, <laughs> I quite like it, I have to say. I, 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 as much as I like to whinge, I think I, I couldn't throw uh, nice weather. Yep. Not a sky in the cloud. Uh, exactly. I am that cloud. <laughs> I'm the little, the little cloud over your life, my friend. Yep. And what is that that's seeping down from you onto me <laughs> constantly? <laughs> that's my tears. <laughs> well, you should get yourself to a doctor because those tears look milky. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just having a little oh. sip of iron brew there to just reinforce the Scottish stereotypes even more. There we go. A bit like churches, like Coachella. Oh, churches are excellent though. But all they did was complain, well, not really complain, but all their on-stage banter was like, oh, it's so hot here, we're Scottish, we might melt. I'm wearing Factor 85. I love them even more. We've got Peely Wally skin. <laughs> they actually said that. Peely Wally. <laughs> Peely Wally skin. Churchies is secretly fronted by wee Jimmy Cranky. <laughs> <laughs> There's a brilliant photograph of the Crankies that's doing the rounds at the moment. That just uh, says that it's the first photograph of Axel Rose and <laughs> Angus Young. <laughs> oh man, what do we think of this? What's the what is the what's the feeling on seeing? I, I don't know. Let me just say that the the world's foremost rock singer, Pop rock band. No, the 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 possibly the the greatest rock and roll singer of all time. Mike Patton. <laughs> Fronting the greatest rock and roll band of all time. And people are complaining about this. <laughs> people are saying... Have that... you seen Axl Rose recently? I don't mean like just photographs. I mean like, have you seen, have you heard him? I have, I have seen him, yes, I have seen him. Did you ever think that Brian Johnson had a beautiful singing voice? I didn't think that, no. Right, but you just described Axl as being... Like the foremost. I was being possibly the devil's advocate there. But now Axel genuinely sounds like he makes a good replacement for Brian Johnson because both of their voices sound like shit. There we go. But who's going to sing in Guns N' Roses now? Buckethead? Axel. <laughs> We're gonna get... It's still going to be Axel. Oh. He's, he's going to be touring with Guns N' Roses and 
ACDC at the same time. His throat's going to be open. <laughs> what about, are we going to get DJ Ashband to play guitar? What's his name? The... Uh, what, Slash is going to play guitar. Slash? Slash is back in Guns N' Roses, so is Duff McKagan. That, that's the right people. <laughs> they headlined Coachella last week, and out of curiosity, I checked it out on the live stream, and it sounded god-awful. There we go. Well, I was being... Really sounded like a pub band. Yes, I saw saw a a slight clip of their LA show um, because it was very... Nobody was meant to have cameras in that. I know, and it turned out literally everyone had cameras in there. (laughs) Yeah, they they had signs up going, you can't even... can't bring your phone in or anything. I wonder how long that lasted. (laughs) Oh, well, there we go. He's just an urchin living under the street. SpongeBob SquarePants. Ah, <laughs> uh-huh, so there we go. And and you know they laughed. How they laughed when they said that Matt Cocknell was going to be the lead singer of the Faces. And he was. Uh, did that ever happen? It did happen, and he was better than bloody Rod Stewart would have been. <laughs> so there we go. So in my opinion, giving a ginger fella a wee chance, a wee chance at front in a rock band, I think is a good thing. <laughs> I've never been a huge fan of Rod Stewart, to be honest. Did you hear me there? I was being very um, inclusive of the gingers. <laughs> yeah. Contrary to your claims last week. <laughs> now you're you're just overdoing it, I think. Could I just ask you, you just said that you were never a big Rod Stewart fan. I wasn't. He's, he sounds like he's trying to cough <laughs> up a cauliflower. <laughs> Oh man, so that's that's <laughs> Scotland's number one rock star. He's not Scottish. He's he's Stewart's not Scottish. He's he's he, Scottish think, by adoption. I think he protests. He adopted Scotland. I think he protests too much. <laughs> he did play. He you know he loves football. He does love football. He tells everyone that all the time. <laughs> Give it up, Rod. Come on, we get it. <laughs> he played football for Scotland. He, he did not play football for He did. In the early 90s, there was a Scotland-England match. and I'm before, fairly sure I would have heard about this. Before the match, they had a Scotland-England celebrity uh-huh. match. And it was controversial enough that Rod Stewart's not actually Scottish, but was playing for the Scotland squad. But he also scored two out of the three goals. Look it up if you think I'm lying. And who who were the other celebrities? <laughs> I think it was just him. <laughs> <laughs> he was playing for both sides. <laughs> it was probably just him and Andy Gorham. Uh-huh. Well, there we go. Uh, I know that the faces had some wild times in the 70s, but I didn't know he did that. Um, yep. But I uh, know that's that's something. There we go. No, I've always, I've always, you know, I think... Rod Stewart is someone who I pretend uh, fell off the face of the planet in 1975. And I think as long as you ignore everything he's done since then, and basically stop listening to Rod Stewart, apart from his Dylan and Tom Waits covers since 1975, I think. Nobody sings uh, Bob Dylan quite like Rod Stewart, I'll tell you. Do you want to do an impression of it? In the morning, don't say you love me. (laughs) 
so I can hear the cauliflower being coughed up there. Holy! <laughs> <laughs> it's not a football that he kicks into the audience. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's just, it's like he's got cauliflower fur balls. Regurgitated cauliflower fur balls. Oh. Rod Stewart's regurgitated cauliflower footballs. <laughs> One of my aunts is a big Rod Stewart fan. Right, is she? Yeah. She has quite a... Well, she, she's not big, she's tiny. <laughs> <laughs> Getting smaller every year. Oh, did I tell you the story of... <laughs> last year. <laughs> I started... I was a wee bit ill last year, if you remember, and I was kind of going to the doctors back and forward, and I thought, right, okay, um, that's fine, and everything kind of camped in, and my, moved on with my life, and all was good, right? But for the next couple of months, I started getting things through for the doctors, saying, listen... Has that itching gone away? <laughs> listen, saying, listen, you need to come in because uh, you, you, you qualify for a flu jab, or... You know, you've been enlisted in this program for people who are obese or different things like that. So they had phoned me up a couple of times. I'm thinking, right, okay, I'm going to get this flu jag because... Because you're a beast. So I thought, A, what's wrong with me that they've not told me? Have have they actually <laughs> forgot to tell me something? that they uh, Have they discovered something in tests? And I'm like, oh, maybe oh, I thought we'd phoned you about this. Um, so I thought, right, I'll give them a phone. So I phoned them up. And I says to them, uh, listen, I've got this through saying about that I'm uh, to get a flu jab. And this is right, okay, well, um, I'll just double check what the reason is. And the, the lassie goes away, she types into her machine, and then she comes back and she says, she's laughing. And she says, <laughs> could, could I ask you what height you are? <laughs> and, and I says, 18 inches lying down. <laughs> well, I says, I'm five foot seven. And she says, she starts laughing because they had me doing as being 75 centimetres tall. <laughs> so, so I think they were expecting this little tiny 12 stone, basically football, to, to come rolling in. Um, <laughs> you, they thought you were one of the dwarves from the Shire. They did. They did. They did. So I can see Ilshaw's fattest uh, dwarf. Um, but yes, there we that go. That could have got you a really good position at the Miramis Festival in Irvine. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. They'll let you set off the fireworks and everything. <laughs> and here he is standing on his box. The star of the safety dance video. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't believe that you only just told me that. That's amazing. I know. There we go. Ruth Davidson's let herself go. Um... <laughs> right. There we go. Right. So, <laughs> on that note. On that note, Gil, have you been up to anything exciting this week? Have you seen anything interesting? Uh, I've mostly been, well, watching the, the things for this uh-huh. and, playing, and... A little, playing a little bit of a computer game. Oh, there we go. And so have I, actually, but a different one. There we go. So you, um, was it, were you playing Fallout? 
I was playing Fallout. Ah, oh, how exciting! There we go. And what's very up? exciting. Thank you very much. No again. problem at all, my friend. No, I'm living vicariously through you since uh, I don't have a PS4. You know that Anne will hate you. I know. I know. I could see the look in her eyes. <laughs> Not another bloody massive open world game for him to play. So what's it like? It's great. Mm-hmm. It really is a lot of fun. I haven't had loads of opportunity to play it. Okay. But the the time that I have played it, it's, it's quite addictive mm-hmm. as well. It's also quite easy to die. Where do you start off? Are you in a vault or are you... Yeah. Right, okay, same again. Okay. Well, this is the first one that I've played where you start off in a vault. The only one that I've played... Up until now, is New Vegas. Oh, in New Vegas, you start in that kind of shack, don't you? The little town. Yep. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. So that's that's my only Fallout experience so far. Very cool. So going into this one, I was expecting it to be kind of like New Vegas, and I suppose in a way it is because you've got the thing on your wrist and all that. Fallout fans are going to be so disappointed in me at the moment. I don't know all the terminology. The Pip boy. Pip boy. Yep. Yes, anyway. you've also got your um, VAT system and all that kind of side of things as well with this. Yeah, um, I take it you're supposed to really read the booklet that comes with it first, but since you brought it round to my house and I, I didn't like go to a shop and buy it and then have a bus journey home, that's, I think that's when you read the maps and stuff like that. That's quite sensible. Yep. Like when you would buy an album mm-hmm. and by the time you got home you'd read all the liner notes and stuff. Yeah, I kind of miss that. I miss, like, being able to... I, I wouldn't necessarily read the manual, don't get me wrong. But I think <laughs> I've ever read the manual of a computer game. What's it going to tell you? Some of them tell you a lot. Some of them tell you, like, backstory. Some of them it's like a comic and stuff like that. Well, in fairness, I'm hugely confused with the game that you got me. <laughs> Even though I've played it, like, a hundred times before, I was just... I, I don't remember how to... It's... But that's, is that also because you decided that you would take the packaging that's in Spanish? Yes. See, see. <laughs> <laughs> There's only four buttons and I don't know what any of them do. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was Marvel vs. Capcom 3, which Gil kindly bought me after I was whinging that uh, I no longer had it. So, um, yeah, awesome. Very, very enjoyable. But I have no idea how to change character. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to borrow my manual? <laughs> si, I want in English. See, si, senor. <laughs> you know that the manual is probably online as well. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I just thought by it. It seems to be like I just press buttons, things <laughs> things happen, and then someone tells me whether I've won or no. That tends to be. <laughs> If you press triangle, do you start the game in an alternate outfit? Yes, you can press. Uh, you've got four alternate outfits. Nice. Um, so that's pretty slick. Um, but weirdly, they've deleted all the downloadable content, so you can't download any of the downloadable content for the game. That's a bit of a pain. Yeah, so it's like loads of people complaining about it online, but presumably they've just decided because they issued the ultimate edition, they don't need mm-hmm. to they don't need to have that anymore. Um, that's annoying. I'll see if I can find the ultimate edition for you. Oh no, don't no, don't bother. It's great. If you ever buy Borderlands two, actually, uh-huh. you don't need to buy Borderlands two because I've got two copies of it. Uh huh. I'll I'll give you the copy that I've got where all the DLC actually comes on a disc. There we go. Well, thank you very much, my friend. Um, okay. So, did you apart from Fallout? Um, and I mean, obviously, Fallout 
kind of ties in quite quite neatly with our theme for this week, which is post-apocalyptic um, post-apocalyptic dramas, basically sci-fi films. Yeah. Um, it's and, technically homework, isn't uh-huh. it? And the, well, absolutely, it's preparation. Um, That's my excuse. I'm doing homework for the show. Just a, a, in terms of other post-apocalyptic scenarios, I see. I don't know if you remember. Were you ever a wrestling fan? Did you ever know of a guy named Jeff Jarrett? The name rings a bell. Double Did J? he have his Willie chopped off? No, that's the... <laughs> that's John Wayne Bobbitt, is it? No. Oh, uh, it. See, she should have chopped off part of one of his testicles, shouldn't uh-huh. she? Just what? so that his name would work. <laughs> a Bobbitt. <laughs> She must have tricked that, Loretta. <laughs> there we go. Yes. When the, in a kind of bizarre uh, turn of events, Jeff Jarrett started selling gold, <laughs> it seems, which is quite strange. So it's got this kind of uh, weird global force gold company that's... Uh, it's worth its weight. It seems to not be worth its weight, <laughs> to be honest. But um, There we go. So just in case you're... Uh, planning to uh, invest in raw materials that's probably one way to do it but no there is one thing what's that one thing that is more valuable than gold what's that by weight and that's printer ink printer ink Uh uh-huh is that true printer ink is one of the most expensive things by weight ever that's fascinating just because of the stupid prices that they charge for it prices are unreal Yep, and the small amount that you get. There we go. So yes, post-apocalyptic dramas this week, and I think qu- quite annoyingly we've not picked any duds. Well, I picked them. <laughs> well, I think that's probably part of it. Um, you thought that I'd picked a dud. I did think you picked a dud, um, but no, it's a very, very good selection. So shall we have a short break there and then dive back in? Yeah, shall we do them in the? the order that they were released. Of course, yeah. that'd be lovely. So what, what do we start with, Gil? Uh, I think it's a boy and his dog. Boy and his dog's like... also ties into Fallout 4 because you get a dog. And some references to this in Fallout as well, which is quite interesting. Yeah. So, A Boy and His Dog from 1975, up next, after this. a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Kid Radio. Okay, guys, and we're back to discuss A Boy and His Dog. Um, directed and written by L.Q. Jones um, and based on a novel by Harlan Ellison. Yep, the legendary Harlan Ellison. 
very angry, angry man. So, what was? Were you aware of his other work then, Gil? What was? What was his? Uh huh. I I think that a lot of people would be aware of at least some of. Oh, is this the one that was released posthumously, and he'd done? Is that right? Or am I thinking of something else? Or I think is. I think I'm thinking. Not dead. I'm thinking of Zed Zed for Zachariah. Yep. That was because the guy that wrote Zed for Zachariah also wrote the quite famous Rats That's of... That's what I was thinking, Nim. Rats of Nim. But do you know what Nim is? I don't remember. I the remember... National Institute of Mental Health. That's why it's all capitals, because it is National Institute of Mental Health. The Rats in those stories were meant to have been ah. trained to be superior and then they escape ah. and they set up their little civilizations using utilizing the special skills that they've been given by people that were studying them they're all ah. scientific experiments there we go but yeah uh star trek that's a a thing that harlan ellison was involved with oh ah, okay there we go. so I'm, I'm pretty sure that people would be aware of that he also did some anthologies mm-hmm. as well. He organised some anthologies that were massive in the 70s. I'll see if I can look up on the internet. But there's a really good documentary about him that I saw a couple of years ago mm-hmm. and I can't find it anywhere now. Mm. It's uh, It's got a weird name, like Dreams with... Oh, Dreams with Sharp Teeth. There we go. That's it. 2008. Well, it's on YouTube, so you you can watch that, should you I wish. I attempted to watch it on YouTube. Oh, not available in your country. <laughs> yeah. Was, uh, so I, I used the program that lets you change what When's that ever stopped you? That's what I was about to say. <laughs> well, it's, it's, I can tell you it appears to not be available in, in any country. country. Right, okay. <laughs> From Algeria to Zimbabwe. <laughs> It's not available. There we go. Okay, so A Boy and His Dog is a post-apocalyptic tale based on a novella by Harlan Ellison. A boy communicates telepathic with his dog as they scavenge for food and sex, and they stumble into (laughs) an underground society where the old society is preserved. The daughter of one of the leaders of the community seduces and wills them below, where the citizens have become unable to reproduce because of being underground. Um, Not enough vitamin D. There we go. So, I, I believe that that underground civilization was modelled on Scotland. <laughs> According to churches, yes. <laughs> there we go. Um, I love churches. I'm so annoyed. <laughs> well, it just well, it was like when Faith No More played uh-huh. in Glasgow last year. Uh-huh. There. They annoyingly did the deep fried Mars bar banter, where you just think, "Oh, I have never seen or tasted a deep fried Mars bar." Uh, see, that, you know, this, this is the difference between you and I. <laughs> <laughs> this is what you've done many. both. Now, myself, was it nice? And my fiance went out for Japanese food the other day. There, <laughs> when you, yeah, you you must have being engrossed in conversation because you were texting me at the time. Can you use chopsticks? Because <laughs> I was thinking, well, if I've got one friend who's cultured enough to <laughs> enjoy and relish using chopsticks, it's one Gil Rokotansky. So I was like that, Gil, help a brother out here. How do I actually do this? 
Um, and he, you you helpfully recommended a, a sober. Yeah. There we go. Which uh, did you have a sober? I did not have a sober. I decided to to go for something nice and spicy. Try. A sober's like a big noodly soup. There we go. Oh well. With stuff on top of it. Delicious. That sounds good. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. But you were correct. I do like. And, and sushi as well. I love sushi. When we not when, the least bit surprised. <laughs> when Anne and I used to go to music festivals, uh-huh. there we would go to the Leeds festival, and one of our friends wouldn't camp. Uh-huh. He would stay in a hotel, and I would get them to bring me sushi. <laughs> I know it. Yep. Why is that? It's, it's nice when you're sitting in a field, a beautiful day, surrounded by people that have been living in their own sweat and excrement yeah, yeah. for like four days and you're just sitting there enjoying some nice sushi so the only time I went to a festival apart from I went I went to tea in the park when I was 13 could you believe but the only time other who than headlined that, um, I was there exclusively to see Foo Fighters but I believe it was somebody really good that I would that I would later come to wish I'd stuck around for it was either Pulp or Radiohead yeah. So and I was like, "Who are these losers? I'm going. I'm heading home. <laughs> I've seen Alanis Morissette. I've seen the Foo Fighters. I'm away home." Oh. So yes, it was. Uh, <laughs> it passed my bedtime as a young man in many respects. Um, <laughs> had you had a cheeky cider? The only, no, no. I was there with a with a, a family friend, and she was there looking after me. And apart for apart for that, the only other time that I was at a music festival. I slept in my own car because I would rather do that than camp outside. I'm so it. glad you said car. <laughs> what do you think? Was that phrase was, see, what would you imagine if I said I went to a music festival and I slept in my own... Filth. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What? what? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just in a cheery mood. Well, I like it. I like it. Good for like you. It. Good for you. Um... They so, say that cat girl is a bad mother. Shut your mouth. Oh, God. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, a boy and his dog um, starts off with um, our lead character, Vic, and his dog, Blood, um, who have this telepathic link with each other. And Vic is basically looking for... What's the kind of... What's the best way to say it? Puntang. He's looking for some love. Yep. And he's in all not, the wrong places. And he's not particularly fussy about how he gets it. Um, so he's... Uh, I think he's fussier than others, though. Although there, it's a weird film, because you can really enjoy it, but then at the same time, Harlan Ellison doesn't entirely like it because there's some... Like quite throwaway misogynistic lines in it, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Like at the the start of the film was what he calls a raider party. That mm-hmm. uh, Vic and Bloods have been kind of watching, mm-hmm. and when they've buggered off from the place that they've raided, they go and have a look, and they find a woman that's been kind of severely beaten and uh-huh. raped and. Is lying there dead. Why? Why did they cut her? They could have yeah. got another. What is it? We could have got another she, shot she of her. Been, she could have been used another few times, ta- another uh-huh. three or four times, something like that. Which is, you know, that kind of. But the character Vic, he's meant to be fifteen uh-huh. actually in the 
in the story, but Don Johnson mm-hmm. is in his 20s. Right, okay. This. So this is a post-apocalyptic uh, kind of wasteland that we that we are presented with. It's kind of desert. Um, we don't get a we we do get a date. I think it's like twenty twenty four or something like that. It's supposed to be after the world World War Four happened. That took five days to basically extinguish the world, pretty much. And these are the only few survivors. Yeah, we, there's a, a longer description of that in there's comic book adaptations of the novella as well that includes uh, the prequel, which is uh, Vic and Blood, and then there's also a sequel, uh-huh. which I haven't read, but in the in that, it does give you the the better description of the, the World War and why it took five days, because the only reason it took five days is because some of the missiles were not out of the silos yet. They only count it as being five days because it's just when all the bombs have run out. But essentially, you know, the war was over as soon as it started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, no, no, that's it's it's quite a it's. I mean, that's I quite like the way it dealt with that <clears throat> kind of stuff as a movie. It just kind of said, "Well, this happened at the start, and then it just goes straight to a post-apocalyptic universe that we've just to accept as this way and kind of." unfolds the story as as we go and we get to meet uh, Vic and Blood and as I say Vic and Blood have this kind of telepathic link to each other Um, Blood, the dog, has a very eloquent um, very eloquent uh, characterisation where this dog is constantly calling Vic Arthur and uh, being quite critical of him and you know, it's it's a friendship that's uh, you know that that you can see where it, you can see where it's come from and why, but it's uh it's a, a bit of a kind of odd buddy cop type uh, scenario when you've got these two uh, two lead characters and it does it does add a wee bit of intrigue to the story when you've got you've got that relationship. Sorry, it's it's Albert that he calls him. What did I say? Uh, Arthur. Yes, right. But he calls him Albert as a reference to an author who wrote a series of dog books about a dog called Lad. Ah, right, okay. It's it's never explained in the film, but Ah. it is explained in the comics. And it's something that that Vic Uh isn't aware of, but Blood is a far more intelligent dog and well, he's basically Vic's teacher. Ah, uh-huh. so is that explained as things go on, or it's explained in the comics? It's a it's a way that Blood can entertain himself by calling Vic by a different name and Vic hating it and not understanding why it's it's because there's a there's a kind of one upmanship thing uh-huh. in their whole relationship as well as it. It's a nice relationship the two of them have got because they they do rely on each other, but at the same time, they they always want to believe that they're the one in charge. Right. And I think the one that's in charge really is blood. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we meet. Is it uh, Quella? Is the main female character? Or yep. Okay, so we meet uh, Quella, and. 
um, we get this again quite misogynistic almost uh, exchange, or very much so. Um, from from my memory, Gil, it's been a week since I watched it, right enough. But he's almost going to force himself on her, but she is basically like, look, I want this, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm, I'm wanting more, and uh, um, yeah. and that kind of throws him, and it puts him off. Yeah, that's. But I think that makes that scene kind of interesting, because uh-huh. it. It shows you how skewed his view on the world is. Uh-huh. That any any hint of a woman showing consent, yeah, well, or any sort of power, mm-hmm. he doesn't accept that okay. because he he's uh, maybe it's it's better when he's meant to be fifteen because he thinks that he's a man. And well, he is being raised by a dog, so his his world view is not going to be the greatest when you're being raised in a desert wilderness by a dog. By a dog. <laughs> Could certainly be argued. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and and as that progresses, we discover that she is from an underground society who have managed to Topeka. Topeka, and they have managed to preserve some of the old ways. It's a it's a very odd civilization that they've got because it is underground, and it's it's meant to be underneath the ruins of Topeka, Kansas, mm-hmm. and that's why it's called that. But they've got trees and everything, but they have no sunlight. Uh huh. But then they have their their artificial day and night. It's it's made quite clear that they basically filmed this outdoors. Uh-huh. But then they tell you that you get to this place through a little staircase. Uh-huh. I think that the problem is you don't you're never really given a sense of scale. No, that's true. That's true. In terms of this underground society, you don't get that sense of how big this is or how how small it is. Um Because and... it does cut from wide open spaces to small tiny rooms. Uh-huh. So the the they have this kind of artificial version of the fifties, fifties um, America that they attend, that they have in place. They've got a marching band, church, church-based society type thing, very community-based society. Um, they wear white face, and bizarrely wear white face. Yeah. What, yep. Do you know? Was that ever explained, or was that something that was was mentioned in the the comics? It's something to do with. The rural areas is uh, meant to be kind of more nineteen twenties, fifties. All right, okay. Really, so I think that there are. I mean, you can see elements in it where you think that it does look a wee bit fifties. You can expect that people are going to start bopping to rock and roll hmm. at any minute, but yeah. that never quite happens in Topeka. <laughs> and what happens in Topeka stays in Topeka. Absolutely. Um, and as as that progresses, we get to find out more about this society, and we find out that they have a committee that pretty much runs that runs everything about their society, um, and that makes decisions about people's lives. Um, and when people disobey the rules of this society, they 
have a decision made, made against them as to what's going to happen with them. Um, so it's often kind of cruel punishments or being sent to the farm and then they make a, the, the, the committee meets and makes a decision as to how they're uh, what's going to be reported as their uh, method of death, whether that's heart attack or whether that's a stroke or whatever. Um, yes. And uh, in reality, they're being uh, muddled by uh, by a character um, that's that's again more interesting than than first let its own. Um, so yeah, the it's, Jason Robards. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting film. At points in it, I felt it was getting a bit too weird. I don't know how you felt about that, and I know it's um, I know these kind of post-apocalyptic things they they do tend to be, but it just kind of <laughs> it felt like it was just veering off just a wee bit into the self-indulgent territory for a wee bit. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, I very much enjoyed it, and I particularly enjoyed the ending. I thought the ending of the film was was very good. And um, should we? We probably shouldn't mention that, but um, it's got a very nice little twist ending that 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 yeah. uh, that will leave you with a wee smile on your face. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I th- it cements the title. Yeah, I, I, yeah, absolutely. And the, as I said, the, uh, when we were talking about this, the clue is very much in the title as to um, as to how the how the thing is going to play out. Um, and the guy that played the dog also did the music for it, apart from the Topeka music. Ah, what was the what was the Topeka music? The marching band stuff. For? Yeah, that was all done by someone else, but uh, Tim McIntyre, who did the voice of Blood. Uh huh. He. <laughs> this is so weird. I now have a dog beside me. Ah, there we go. I'm a gill and his dog. <laughs> But yeah, he he did the the music, so he was a twofer for them. He was a twofer. There we go. Very cool. Um. So yeah, would you recommend this one, girl? I'd highly recommend it. I'd recommend it, was... it to me. <laughs> yeah, it was great getting to watch it again because I hadn't seen it for quite a while. Uh huh. You you mentioned that you felt that there was a couple of flaws to it, but the, it was it was one that kind of that you regularly went back to. Would you like to speak to that for a bit? Yeah. It, Clearly has its flaws. Like the, it can be a bit uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Some some of the, the lines, just the misogyny is a bit sure. odd, and the, the white face is just kind of jarring, and your lack of scale, in Topeka. I think maybe, you don't really see enough, of, Topeka mm-hmm. overall, because it's it's a full culture that they've got going down there and it really does just get introduced and remain big bad so instantly it's you have to get away there isn't any because she's meant to attract him to come down there so that he can artificially inseminate them yeah it's i think the the wikipedia page used the the word electro ejaculation. Yeah, he was thinking that he was going to be uh, inseminating thirty-two women. <laughs> no, thirty-five, even 30, better. Thirty-five, 35 yeah. women. <laughs> uh, the old-fashioned way, um, but unfortunately, yeah. he was getting the 
uh, the modern <laughs> the modern method, um, yeah. which is not quite so pleasant. Um, but that all goes past too quickly, really. Oh, tell me about it. I think that's... <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, but can you imagine if they'd... Oh, I know. Oh, if it, if it maybe went down the quarter orange route or something like yeah. that, I'll just drawn it out just that wee bit. There's lots mm-hmm. of ways you could have done that um, to make it just more effective. But I thought the, I, I particularly thought I thought the the um, sequence with um, him being tied to this uh, hospital bed, you know, in stirrups essentially, with yeah. um, people getting essentially married to him. Uh, and the the you know the we- the wedding arch being right next to him, um, yeah. I thought that was quite a kind of quite an amusing and uh, surreal image that, that that I felt really stood in in this film's favour. Um, While they're playing with his bobby, absolutely, absolutely. That that'll give people a clue as to the the title of this episode. There we go. I think it is the strongest pun we've ever used. Well, it's nothing to do with me. I hasten to add. If there's anything funny, it's nothing to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> right. So, The Quiet Earth um, is from 1985. It was, uh, oh God, it was directed by Jeff Murphy. It's written by Craig Harrison and based in, based in a novel by Craig Harrison um, and written by Bill Bear, uh, Bruno Lawrence and Sam Pillsbury. Stars Bruno Lawrence as Zach Hobson. Uh, Alison Routledge as Joanne and Pete Smith as Arpy. Yep. Um, that's essentially the cast. Because he's Arpy. Sing along, yeah. <laughs> um, so the Quiet Earth opens um, with our lead character, Zach Hobson, um, to find himself alone in the world. Um, he does his alarm go off or does it at 6 12 a.m. 6 12 a.m. Would you like to stop size this one, Gil? Because my memory is short. Uh, well, this the synopsis is just essentially that he wakes up at 6 12 a.m. Uh-huh. and slowly comes to realize that there is nobody else about at all, <laughs> and then has his uh kind of time enough at last moment for a couple of seconds, but then does actually start looking for other people, sending out radio messages and and then going slightly mad. He has his, dic- <laughs> his dictato- dictatorial element mm-hmm. at one point. I loved it, but it's I sadly haven't had enough time to read the book. Oh. Which was given to me by one of our lovely listeners for my Christmas. Oh, who was that? That was uh, our our friend Mark. Oh, there we go. Um, so yeah, the, don't let you read books. No, absolutely. I think the the funniest. I, I I thought it was very funny. The broadcasts that he was doing and the like the um the conversational tone of mm-hmm. the the billboard uh, painting that he was doing. So it's things like. Hello, my name is Zach. I am, think I may be the last survivor. If you are, whatever it was, it was a very chatty tone. And I, yeah. I have to say, I, I thought it was very good. And um, so as the, as the film progresses, we we get to see him um, 
deciding that, well, if nobody else is here, I'm having a wee upgrade. Uh, and he moves from his uh, small, uh, modest home to yeah. someone else's amazing, massive mansion. <laughs> um, and has, as you say, a few moments where he's declaring himself the president of the quiet earth and uh, dressing in women's clothing and, uh, you know... Um, like, Basically the sort of stuff that we do on a Sunday. Ex- exactly, exactly. Um, so yeah, uh, so as, as the, the film progresses, he uh, discovers that he's not the only one. Yep. Okay, and do you remember, how does the woman come into it? My memory is rubbish. <laughs> well, also he tries to, before... We get that he tries to figure out what's gone wrong that lets us see that he worked in a mysterious underground lab. Oh, of course, of course. On Project Flashlight. Uh-huh. So his kind of excuse or his justification is that he was only one small part in this massive project and that um, they were working with it alongside the Americans and it was to do with... Basically involving it's, it's to do with aircraft flight and to do with to do with refueling and so, or something along that line, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. To do with energy. Um, so yeah, that's uh, he goes and he try it goes to his place of work, which again I I was kind of looking at it from the you know the the amusement standpoint is that well the world's ended but you still go to your work <laughs> you still go <laughs> to your work to see uh, see what's happening um and he's uh, he finds one of his colleagues uh, slumped at the at the desk in a poor state of repair shall we say <laughs> which is more important to the book than to the film right how so in the the book it's there's kind of repressed memories from before. Mm-hmm. It's just him and Appy, really. Mm-hmm. There is a woman in the book, but they hit her with a car and then she dies. Okay, so the the, the effect is the red flashing light that we see uh, occasionally in the film, yeah. and um, as a what is it? He works it out to be. It's something to do with. It's like a countdown. It's like it's building up to happen again. Another effect. Uh huh. And they believe that basically the project flashlight has in some way caused this effect to happen. And you know, whatever the pro, whatever the project was doing, is actually, you know, led to this insane disaster happening. That's that's um, you know, destroyed humanity. It's not just that everybody's disappeared. He's noticing that there's. There's things wrong with the actual world, mm. so that's why he's he's convinced that it's just going to build up and happen again. So he wants to to stop it, but then all of a sudden, one day his his things appear to have worked because a young lady turns up and he kind of falls in love mm-hmm. quite quickly. <laughs> Yeah, so but that, you would, wouldn't you? So that young woman's uh, Joanne. Joanne. Um, and straight away you get that kind of very nice relationship building up between the between the two of them, um, and they communicate via uh, walkie-talkies, and they are both 
searching and scouting out for um for other people and then meeting up and having elaborate dinners and that kind of side of things. Um yeah. at that point uh at that point is uh, find Appy. Zach basically gets hijacked. Um he uh, go finds himself down an alleyway um when searching for someone. <laughs> Um, and it's we've all been there. Oh, absolutely! And it's a very ominous kind of alleyway when, when we go, when when we're drawn down into that. It's it's interesting because there's signs up. Please do not come here at night, and so on, things like that that build to a sense of unease. And whether that's you know whether that was deliberately done or not, it, it mm-hmm. does that. And um, Appy, uh, sorry, Zach gets trapped. Um, and finds himself unable to escape. His car gets blocked in uh, into this alleyway by a van, and he can't see who's who exactly's driving. Sorry, the truck, and he can't see exactly who's driving it. So he pro- pro- goes up to the truck and discovers that there's this uh, Aborigine gentleman um, named Appy, who he's a Maori. Maori. All right. Sorry, my apologies. It's New Zealand, not Australia. Oh, there we go. Good on you, man. Good. Um, <laughs> good, good on you. That's very, that's very antipodean, isn't good it? Good on you, mate. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, and we obviously we 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 find out that um that he is uh, he's also a survivor of the event, um, and then they discover that they were all basically close to death. Yeah. When the the event happened. So Appy was being drowned. um, (laughs) As you do. uh In the middle of a fight. Um, Joanne was uh, being electrocuted by a faulty hairdryer and Zach had overdosed in pills uh, in a suicide attempt. Um, Now that's never... Did you take notes? That's never... No, Wiki took notes. That's (laughs) that's never explained um, in the, the film, I don't think, in terms of why he took, why he was overdosing, but was it, do you think that was to do with proper, uh, Project Flashlight? Uh, in the, the book, uh-huh. it's, it's guilt. So do you think we're supposed to take that as being applied to the film or not? As, I think the two of them are... Quite different are things. Quite different because sure. Joanne is There's no introduced to... A, I'm still not entirely sure why they introduced Joanne, but it does work. Uh-huh. Because, like, as as we will probably mention later on, mm-hmm. there's there's more scope for things happening when you have a trio rather than a duo. Yep. I agree. I agree. You also might occasionally be able to hear in the background a snoring dog. Mm-hmm. So, my apologies. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> there we go. It's Pepper of now we sleep. Yep, she's having a wee snooze. Okay, so as things progress, uh, Zach um, becomes increasingly concerned um, by what he's seeing and his his observations of uh, the effect, and um, decides that um, he's going to try and identify when the when the effect is next going to happen, and try to formulate a plan to reverse that or to try and put things right again um his plan is not so much scientific and 
you know, precise. It's, uh-huh. it's more thuggish. <laughs> Just blow things up. I can't, I can't say I understood the plan, to be honest, but I suppose that's... Uh... Just drive a truck straight into Project Flashlight, covered in TNT and blow the shit out of it. So did they believe that what was what was happening at Flashlight was continually causing the effect to happen rather than... Because I, I personally would have imagined that it was triggered by an event rather than an ongoing event, but I suppose that's one way of looking at it. Um, I think he believes that because the because everybody's gone, but uh-huh. things do still work, that maybe the the event, the effect could happen again because Project, Project Flashlight is still running. We keep saying the event. It reminds me of that yeah. Mitchell and Webb thing. Did not yeah. think about Did the not. event. Yeah. Remain indoors. I think that may be what's uh, stuck in the back of my head. <laughs> but yeah, it's they never really make it all that clear. But I think just because they they tend to stay away from the science, like in in the book, they have discussion about whether or not they've been sent to like a they're in an alternate version uh-huh, of the yes. world, uh-huh. like lab rats. Uh-huh. Whereas you don't really get that in this. Uh-huh. You get little bits of it, but essentially it is just as three people left in the world and he believes it was caused by this thing up the road. So let's go and blow it up. Yep. So they make a- and then there's a love triangle. Yeah, and they formulate a plan to try and get rid of that and... We won't give the, the ending away. Um, but yeah, I I really enjoyed this one. I thought that it worked really well as a trio. Uh, I particularly enjoyed... I think this is the one that I enjoyed the most. Mm-hmm. Out of the three, I particularly liked Zach's character. Um, and I, I have to say I particularly liked it um, before, um, before Appy showed up. Um, mm-hmm. I felt it was quite a good you know, quite fun tonally and I would have been quite happy, I think, if it had just been those two two characters. Um but I suppose you, you need to have some degree of, you know, plot going forward. But I, I, I enjoyed it and I really enjoyed both characters and I felt they, they progressed really well. But as you say, the having the three uh characters does tend to it does give you um it does give you conflict that you wouldn't yeah. otherwise have, and that conflict leads on to interest. Well, it's it's different conflict, uh-huh. really. I mean, the the conflict of having two men mm-hmm. left that it, it just becomes more alpha male. Uh huh. And I mean, there was there was an element of trust as well with this as well that that kind of ran through the the whole thing mm-hmm. the, and paranoia the theme of trust and paranoia in this world where um you know where where everything has everything's gone um where did you come from do you know did you know each other before you seem awfully close you're embracing each other like friends like you've known yeah. each other a long time um so it was it was an interesting one, and just just seeing those relationships develop was interesting. And then seeing Zach becoming more and more consumed with the single purpose of saving the world, um, of um, or, or undoing whichever whatever his work had done, and presumably that's from a sense of duty that's 
resulted mm. from his involvement in the project. You know, and he mentions being a kind of working on his small part, and it reminded me of um, Israeli nuclear scientists talking about, um, you know, after after the fact, talking about how you know you just focus on your small part of yeah. this. You don't, you know, you don't focus on the the, the what the bombs are being used for. No nuclear scientists, sorry, but you know, um, the scientists that are involved in the production of weapons. Yeah, uh, I only I only built this one thing. Uh-huh, exactly, the, exactly, exactly. What the whole thing was. Exactly. So, what film used that plot or TV series? Something. Some something did use that. Whether basically was. That very line. I only, I only worked on the thing that I was making. None of us knew what the whole thing was. Mm. was I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. We get the, we get the, the. But we can't really spoil the ending no. of this film because that would be impossible, really. Because it's, it's so much interpretation, I think. Yeah, but also it's uh, it suffers from Planet of the Apes syndrome, uh-huh. where if people look for this film, then the the DVD and Blu-ray artwork spoils the ending for you. But I just I still can't understand why anybody would go. Let's do a brand new release of Planet of the Apes. What will we stick on the front cover? Let's have the Statue of Liberty. Ah, there we go. Who who came up with that idea? That's an awful you idea. Know. There we yeah. go. Yep. It's like artwork that's made for people that already love the film uh-huh. and just will just ruin it for newcomers. Sure. And The Quiet Earth... Suffers from that as well. ...does, does that as well. Because uh, if you look at the artwork... Oh, so you, it does, my goodness. You go, what? I have no idea what that is. And, well, basically what you're looking at is the end credits of the film. <laughs> Jeez. There we go. But then you'll, you'll spend the whole film thinking, how the hell do we get to that? <laughs> Did this remind you of Twenty Eight Days Later? No, no. Not really. I, I can I can see that maybe Twenty Eight Days Later has taken elements from this, mm-hmm. but actually, uh, there's a list of films. I'll need to look up the wiki page for this because there was a list of films on it that this was inspired by. Ah, okay. I don't know if you're on the wiki page, you can probably just. Well, I, th- I remember from reading before that Dawn of the Dead was one of them, and. Um, oh, I am Legend. I am Legend, of course. I think I am. I think it's very clearly influenced by I am Legend. There we go. I am Legend, Dawn of the Dead, and especially the 1959 film The World, the Flesh, and the Devil. Now you were telling me that you were thinking about watching that one. Did you get around to it, or? I sadly haven't had time okay. to watch it, but that stars Harry Belafonte. Uh huh. And he got paid an awful lot of money for that film at the time. Mm-hmm. He was right at the peak of his career. I'm actually really looking forward to watching that. So on the next show, I will probably say how good this 1959 film is. Excellent. Very cool. Um, there we go. And as I say, Last Man on Earth is, um, you know, it, remind, it reminded me of that in a lot of respects as mm. well. And it's kind of got that similar tone to that. You should point out to younger listeners that you mean the Vincent Price movie adaptation of I Am Legend rather than the TV series Last Man on Earth, which also takes a lot of its cues from this film. Ah, what's the TV version? I didn't even know they did a TV version. It's a comedy 
TV series. Oh, okay. Who's in it? Uh, Kristen Schaal. Oh, okay. And uh, Jason Sudeikis is in a in a small role. Uh-huh. He's actually he's he's doing the gravity thing. Uh-huh. Uh huh. It's it's basically the the same idea that suddenly everybody has disappeared, mm-hmm. and it's really annoying that I can't remember the name of the lead actor who also was it Will Forty. Will Forty, yep. Who is incredibly good, and it's at least the first series is worth watching because he goes through more extended loneliness. And I, I like the fact that they that somebody looked at the script for a TV series that said basically this man spends a whole lot of time on his own, uh-huh. and you see him going mad, and he does the sort of things that you don't see as much of in the Quiet Earth, like uh, he. <laughs> Well, he collects a shitload of pornography. <laughs> uh, he he travels about looking for other people, uh-huh. writing uh, "Alive in Tucson" uh-huh. on billboards as well. And is that your dog? <laughs> that is the dog. Yep. There you go. Now we shake. Yep. Shake dog shake. That's a cure reference. There we go. But yeah, he he does that whole thing. But then he's got all these fantastic relics of the past in this massive house that he's decided to move into. Huh. And then other people do arrive, and you get the the exact same sort of thing. But the the problem is that Will Forte's character uh-huh. is not entirely likeable but then you have watched him go mad and instead of like in Castaway you've got the one beach ball mm-hmm. he has a large collection of different <laughs> types of balls that all have different names <laughs> and has they, they live in a bar and he has whole conversations with them but then he also decides to do things like well you can blow the shit out of things you can get really bored and just trash stuff. So it's 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 quite fun. It's it's worth having a wee look at. Very cool. Okay, um so on that note we shall take a short break and we'll return to discuss two versions of Z for Zachariah. Or Z for Zachariah. Z for Zachariah. I'll say Z Z Z. And you can explain to me why you've sent me a photograph of someone called DJ Ashby. I just thought his face looked funny. And on that <laughs> note... It's like character. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, I, I, for the record, he is not, he is not ginger, and this is... Not ginger. So I, He's I, wearing Mike Muir from Suicidal Tendencies bandana. Uh-huh, there we go. Well, DJ Ashby was the artist... Uh, behind the Green Inferno soundtrack. All right. He was the so, guitarist in Guns N' Roses, and I thought it would be funny to send a picture of his stupid. See Bumblefoot. No, he's <laughs> DJ Ashba. Right. There was somebody in Guns N' Roses called Bumblefoot, wasn't there? And there was like a, a bumblebee guitar. And there was also a gentleman named uh, Buckethead. Yeah, Buckethead's an incredibly good guitarist. I have no idea why he joined Guns N' Roses. Because they're 
Because they're America's top rock group. <laughs> North America's top. <laughs> okay. That was, that was a, an Alan Partridge reference for anyone that didn't get it. Okay. Right. So on that note, I, we shall take a short break and we return to discuss Z for Zack Ryer. <laughs> Don't you dare miss it. Looking for something different in your podcast library? Then why not check out the podcast Under the Stairs? I'm the host Duncan McLeish and joining me each week will be a special guest as we examine some classic old school horror favourites as well as some modern classics. That's not to say that we don't tackle some of the, let's say, more questionable entries into the horror genre. And if all that wasn't enough, we have a subset of shows called Baz V Horror, where our horror novice, The Baz, tackles horror in all shapes and forms to see who will come out victorious. So what are you waiting for? The show can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and on Stitcher and iTunes. The Podcast Under The Stairs is a proud member of Legion Podcast Network. This is Duncan McLeish from Under The Stairs, signing off. Okay guys, and we're back uh, to discuss two versions of Z for Zachariah. And Z for Zachariah. Oh, there we go, I like it. We should call one of them Z for Zachariah. World War Z for Zachariah <laughs> is the, the recent one. Uh-huh. And Z for Zachariah. Apocalypse Z for Zachariah. <laughs> Z Nation for Zachariah. Uh-huh, right, okay. Which is now on Netflix, you've uh, yeah, liably informed me. Yep, the Asylum TV series Z Nation. Uh-huh. That I kept telling you ages ago, give it a watch. Uh-huh. It is, it is worth sticking with. It's, it's not a long first series. And hopefully the second series will be added soon. So... Definitely give it a watch. I think you will like it. Very cool. Because it's, it's got that kind of tongue-in-cheek sense of humour. I love so much. <laughs> um, so, the first version that we're going to talk about is from 1984. Um, it was uh, filmed as part of a play for today, um, which was a British television anthology series um, produced uh, by the BBC. Um, they were usually original stories that they used, uh-huh. and this is one of the few times they went for just a straight adaptation. Ah, very interesting. Okay. Um, so this was an episode from 1984, just um, the programme was cancelled in 1984 uh, after, I think, a 10-year run, 300 episodes. Um so this was based on the book of the same name, depicting events in a Welsh valley after a nuclear holocaust, uh, where almost everyone dies, leaving just two families. Um, yeah, after the event. Yeah, after the event. Um, in this film, nobody discusses the event. There is no reference to that. There's no no reference to anything. Um, this film uh, starts off with. Um, our lead character uh, Anna Bolden um, observing uh, observing uh, now it's kind of hard to tell girl was she looking at um, Loomis's was she looking at Loomis's um... careful what you say yes (laughs) 
Well, the, this one actually starts with the her family leaving. Oh, but there was a part at the start where she's observing something from the hillside before our family actually leave. But it was kind of hard to tell exactly what that was. Yeah. Um, and I was trying to work out whether that was something to do with the work of John Loomis, who's the second character there. Um, regardless of that, that uh, we see her observing some some phenomena, and then she returns to her home where her mother and father are there, uh, along with her brother. Um, and, and the neighbours. Well, they're not there at that point, but they basically... Uh, our father uh, gives a wee speech about how they've been out looking for people and they've been around various people's houses and all of them are dead um, and the, the the place is basically littered with uh, with dead birds. Yeah. Um, Much like the start of A Boy and His Dog. Yes. So um, they eventually set out on a, uh, on a a party to try and find more survivors. Uh, so that's the father, the mother, and uh, Mr. and Mrs. Johnson who own the local store. And they basically tell Anna or Anne, rather, to uh, watch over Joseph, who's our uh, brother, and also Pharaoh, who's the dog. Um, and uh, well, basically the, the brother decides to jump in the in the van along with his mother and father surreptitiously and as a result Anna Anne is left on her own uh, in this small uh, this small farm um, and they never come back and they never come back and sometimes they come back <laughs> sometimes they come back but again. not this time oh. so uh, yeah so Anne is left in that position and time passes we don't know exactly how much time passes or a year really yeah we Loomis does say to her you've you've been here on your own for a year ah there we go okay um so she basically uh, finds this uh this man who is uh who is dressed from head He's to has matted up dressed head to toe in a hazmat suit and is clearly testing the air for radiation and making various tests. And um, we see him... First of all, we see her making various observations um, as to where the water is safe and where it's not safe, making yeah. certain uh, judgments about, well, fish are flowing freely here. Um, fish all the are, fish are dead here. Uh-huh. And, the sheep drank from this water and now it's dead. and makes it pretty clear that as the the second film explains i think it explains it a bit better yes water that comes from outside the valley is all tainted any water source that originates within the valley is fine yep absolutely (laughs) so yeah no absolutely and um we we see this uh this guy uh you know, basically rejoicing at the fact that he's finally found water and jumps in, removes his hazmat suit and, and jumps into the water and starts bathing in it uh, and just covering himself in water. Um, she As you do. 
being fearful of this newcomer, particularly how strangely dressed they are, presumably as well, um, doesn't do anything and doesn't warn him um, in the first instance that the, the water is poisonous and contaminated. Um, but and she actually hides from him as well. She relocates to a cave yep. up in the hillside. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Which shows that she is very aware that another person could be very dangerous because she's meant to be a teenage girl living on her own. So you can understand why seeing a man in his 30s turn up, she might not want to jump out and go, hello. Yeah, exactly. So basically she finds him and finds him sick and discover and obviously feels tremendous guilt that she didn't warn him that the water was uh, contaminated, takes him home and tries to nurse him back to health. We find out that he is a, uh, is a scientist. He's a man that's um, you know very well versed in the world and has lived a, you know a full life in comparison to uh, to, to Anne's background despite the fact that he himself came from uh, a humble humble background as well he's mm-hmm. done well for himself was it oxford that he said he it went was oxford, to uh-huh. um where he became involved in a scientific project that he later reveals to possibly have some sort of links to the event sure in a in a tenuous way, uh-huh. other people's preparation for the event because he was one of the men who were working on designing this suit. Uh-huh. Uh huh. He's a he's a plastics expert. He's a plastics geek. Uh huh. So he's obviously very sick, and she tends to him and uh, tends to his. Uh, his needs while he's recovering um, and at the same time she's also doing all of the uh, the chores in terms of the maintenance of the farm um, and she's kind of we, we kind of get the impression that she is becoming uh, you know becoming warm towards him and thinking that um, I think I think this film this 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 play does things uh, it's a as I say it's a two hour uh, film actually it's a two two hour made for TV movie it's mm-hmm. probably the best way to describe it um it's available on YouTube um so I mean I would encourage people to get to get a look at it just because it is um as I say it's got that it's 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 a self contained story it will take up a bit of time but I think it's very satisfying in and of itself um. Yeah. But yeah, the the kind of interesting thing about this is it just kind of very subtly hints on on those things. It subtly hints on the notes that she is perhaps attracted to him, but is unsure. But still wary. Yeah, and very wary because she's just a little girl. She doesn't know. Which um, is also quite religious. Did you, they, did you think those, of... those themes didn't really come through to me in this version? Not so much in this version. More so... In the other version that we'll talk about in a minute, but she's she is meant to be because even the the title uh-huh. that's meant to be from a you know, biblical book that she had as a child, A for Adam and 
Zed for Zachariah. Which again is only really explained in the the second yeah. uh, movie and not really explained at all, just kind of hinted that. But also um, works really well because that also somewhat insinuates Last Man on Earth. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Man, yeah. Oh Last yeah, man. wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Yeah, and that explains it. That's yeah. I t- totally missed that. So that's yeah, that's definitely it. Yep. Well there that's we go. that's in the, the book. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's great. And that's the the one that when we were talking earlier on about the 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 guy who also wrote the the rats of National Institute of Mental Health, mm-hmm. which is what I will call it from now on, because I always thought, is it Neem mm-hmm. or Neve? Because, <laughs> you know, we have... Oh, yes, the Scottish, yeah, absolutely. ...names uh-huh. like that. But, uh-huh. no. So, um, basically, we discover that the the uh, valley has got a kind of natural... It's It's got its own ecosystem, self-contained ecosystem, that has protected it from whatever the event has been. And it's, it's a MacGuffin. It's a massive, massive. It's a MacGuffin. massive MacGuffin, but it does kind of keep things going, and it, it's a it's a useful device nonetheless. Um, and the the kind of the key thing in this story, I think the story, the thing that makes this story interesting, is the tension between those these two people, um, and the relationship that. That, that forms between them it's quite a negative relationship, mm-hmm. it's a relationship that's based on power uh, that's based on her being subjugated to him and on uh, Anna, uh, sorry Anne um, basically procreating with him and there's very much throughout you know, both versions of the film there are uh, insinuations that she's basically going to be used as a means of repopulating the earth, and that they can, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's another one of the the slightly underused biblical overtones uh-huh. that, that really should be there because she's the one that's that is she's she has a religious mind, mm-hmm. he has a scientific mind, so they they clash on certain issues because of these things. Which makes her think that he's uh, kind of brutish and overbearing, and makes him think that that she's naive and you know still very much a child. So you have these things that that should play out a bit more in this version mm-hmm. that that they really don't use as much. But the whole idea that this value essentially it's a potential ga- garden of it's eden. a garden of eden of course it is um and i think that's why this you know the the two the two hands works to some extent as well um i, I would say that i do agree with your statement earlier that three characters does you know progress the plot a wee bit more of a pace i think this is a two-hour film and the relationship between the characters is very close. Yeah, it's very slow, but it's very close to the book as well, just in terms mm-hmm. of the synopsis that I've read, whereas Zed for Zachariah seems to go in a couple of different other directions. The the movie, the, the recent 2015 version. Um, but the, the 1984 version, I think, um, is again interesting because it's got this quite 
quite kind of dowdy female character and this quite repulsive male character. Um, and there's there's not really the 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 attraction between them definitely isn't there. And mm-hmm. you compare that to the the 2015 version, it's like three quite attractive people, you know, um, yes. and and they're all kind of. Well, you have what? Anne and Loomis and uh-huh. James T. Kirk. Uh-huh. What's James T. Kirk? Oh, uh, Chris Pine. Caleb. And this. Uh huh. Yep, he's uh-huh. Caleb. Yep. So, what we should tell people is watch the watch the YouTube one if you have any plans to watch World War Z for Zachariah. Mm-hmm. Then check out the the nineteen eighty four BBC Play for Today version. Mm-hmm on YouTube, we can probably stick the link up on the Facebook page after we stick this episode out. Sure. Because it's it's more of a it's an overall better version but the 2015 version that has Margot Robbie Mm -hmm. and Chris Pine and Chiwetel Ejiofor. I think I pronounced it correctly. Uh huh. Well, that's good enough for me, bro. Um. So yes, uh, this is an Icelandic film, um, an Icelandic uh drama that uh again veers away from um from the book a wee bit. Um, but I think it does it does so in a couple of kind of quite interesting ways. Um, I think it's a far quicker to actually get to the point of the film i think mm-hmm. we're talking about a good but is that maybe at the detriment of the backstory because then you end up having these really clumsy exposition conversations fair enough yeah i suppose um and margot robbie is clearly not a young teenage girl right in this and you that kind of takes away from the naivety element okay. that Anne should have because that works within the the kind of clash and power struggle because as much as she is naive, mm-hmm. Loomis is by no means any sort of farmer. Mm-hmm. So he needs her to, to show him how to because he can say grow this and grow that but she knows how to actually go and do that and she's tilling the land by hand Uh in in both versions because she doesn't have the scientific knowledge that he does about how you could actually go down to the local petrol station and use a hand crank to extract the petrol Uh So she has a tractor, but no way to fill it mm-hmm. and clearly doesn't investigate that. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things about her is that when things stop working, she just accepts that that doesn't work anymore. Goes down to the local store and gets candles because all the lights are out. Mm-hmm. Whereas he looks at the radiated streamer in, in this one, it's a waterfall, mm-hmm. and says, well, if we get a bunch of wood create a wheel uh-huh. then we can use that to power a generator uh-huh. and then we can have electricity but of course the for some strange reason they never 
they never make any sort of sense in this film because clearly there are a lot of empty houses in this valley. Uh-huh. But he thinks that the best wood is the wood of the old church. Yeah. So pure, he wants to purely destroy... <laughs> yeah, it's a, another really clumsy thing that they do in this film. Like, like the introduction of Jacob. You get... This film starts to play out a little bit like the 1984 mm-hmm. one, and it becomes quite engrossing. Then all of a sudden, Chris Pine turns up, mm-hmm. and you're like, why couldn't you just... If you were going to introduce a third character, not go for, like, magazine cover mm-hmm. type guy. You go for somebody who is interesting as a character, but maybe also interesting in a physical way that's not just superficial. Yep. It's like he turns up and she's like, abs. Mm. I think I think the thing that this film, you know, does, uh, you know, t- to a lesser extent than, than the, the, the 1984 mm. verse, I think quite a lot of the time the character development, despite it only being a three- you know, despite there only being three people on it and there being two in uh, the 1984 version, I, th- yep. I would say that the 2015 version still leaves quite a lot to be desired in terms of character development. I don't feel that if I didn't know what I know about Edward uh, and about the car, sorry, about the character um, uh, Loomis and his, oh, John, John Loomis. Uh-huh, and his relationship with Edward. Um, yep. And that kind of side of things that came out of the 1984 version in the book. Um, Edward's excised completely from the 2015 completely version. Completely removed from that. So, so anything that's coming out of that is is being placed onto that character. And mm-hmm. that's replaced in terms of the, uh, you know, in terms of us feeling some element of conflict as to our sympathies with the fact that she, the the Loomis shot uh, her brother Joseph. Um, while, yeah, while... That's, that's another thing that they bring in. No, no, it's... Uh, well, Loomis thinks that he shot her brother uh-huh. Joseph, and that's that should be a massive point in this film. Uh-huh. But also the, the Edward character, he's got... He's a kind of parallel to the character in... The Quiet Earth, where it's a co-worker mm-hmm. that the the lead male character has killed and feels quite a lot of guilt about. Because mm-hmm. in the 1984 version, we have he she finds out about Edward through these kind of irradiated fever dreams that he has, uh-huh. and that gives her view on him much more of a kind of common sense basis you can see why when she's hearing these things that she would start to recoil from the character whereas in the 2015 version it's it's just clumsy yeah and i I think the other thing that 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 this film does that that that's clumsy is the the violence and the um you know you know the 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 way that Loomis reacts 
uh, to uh, to Anne and the way mm-hmm. that he treats Anne. Um, the violence is over the top and um, intense to a far greater extent than as yeah. in the case of um, the nineteen eighty four. The nineteen eighty four version has much more kind of subtle manipulation of the character. It behaves like an an abusive husband. He starts walking yeah. walking out the options that are open to her, locks the uh, the 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 store where she's been having, where she's been going for supplies, burns her uh, her camp, uh, uses her. When he eventually finds it, because that that is one thing they do in both of them is that uh-huh. she does retreat to a cave. Whereas in the nineteen eighty four version. We've already seen that she has discovered this cave, and it's maybe, I, it's it's weird the way, you know. Sometimes you can just you can take one tiny scene, and you can be like, "Well, I'm watching this silent scene, but I'm getting the motivations." And in that scene, you get the idea that her motivation for staying in that cave is because all the houses around about her are surrounded by their they're all filled with the dead bodies of people that she knows. Mm-hmm. And this cave is probably somewhere that she went to when she was a kid. Mm-hmm. So it's like, a, it's almost like a comfort blanket. Mm-hmm. And she's hiding out there and she's completely fine with that because it's clearly somewhere that she's really familiar with. In the 2015 version, it just seems like, right, so she's given up her home and buggered off to a cave. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, the 2015 version is so poor that it's almost, it's quite forgettable. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's poor at all. I don't think it's a poor film. I mean, as an adaptation. I think it's a, I think it's a poor adaptation, but I think it's interesting in a lot of different ways. I think the, mm. <clears throat> I think the, the kind of central premise of the kind of science, I think it, it plays up a lot of the themes that um, are almost left as undertones in the 1984 version. And I think yeah. it uses um, music and camera work exceptionally well to put it's across. It looks, it looks fantastic, but I think, the, I think the relationships in it are marred by the fact that we don't really get to know who these people are and why. The, the, the thing is, it tries so hard to do that. And it yeah. tries so hard to get you to go. <laughs> well, let's have a long conversation about uh, about what the, the horrors of war and the the ravages of uh, post-apocalyptic society. Um, while uh, while Anne looks so nervously. Um, yeah, but it takes you to the point of it being really interesting, and then Chris Pine shows up, and all of a sudden it just becomes like a soap opera, like stupid petty jealousy nonsense and there's the the whole alpha male one-upmanship thing that just doesn't work because you look at the the two guys and you're like well i don't care if loomis can create all these fantastic things because caleb can probably kick his ass Mm -hmm. And then at the end, well, should we say what happens? Yeah, on you go. Yeah. Uh, Caleb is just dispensed with. 
and it is not it's not explained uh-huh. and then all of a sudden they they skip to the exact same end point really as the other film uh-huh. but it's completely just not satisfying at all because all the stuff that should have been in the section where we've got Chris Pine is the that's the part of the film where the actual motivations of the characters is meant to be explored. So, you know, it's like Chris Pine turns up and he's he's meant to be kind of like devil's advocate. Uh-huh. But it just it didn't work for me at all because I think in a way they over-sexualized the chemistry. I think, uh-huh. I think that's a big part of it. I think having a character, having, uh, I think with the 84 version, <clears throat> you've got pretty uh, two characters that are coming from completely different worlds, trying to understand each other and finding out that, guess what, you can't. It's not possible for these people to <laughs> to have that relationship, not because of the backgrounds, but because on a personal level they're so diametrically they're opposed to each other as well. Uh-huh, absolutely, they're so diametrically opposed to each other in terms of their belief systems. What, what... and they're clinging on to what they what they had before uh-huh. the world went to shit, and that's it's the the fact that like Loomis won't give up on his ideas that well we've got all these things here we can just make them work again whereas Anne has gone all these things have stopped working I will live off the land uh-huh. and those two characters could have found a, a compromise you know, yeah mm-hmm. and worked things out together but it just it never happens and the reason that that never happens is meant to be what kind of drives this story and makes it interesting mm-hmm. and the 2015 version kind of just dispenses with all of that mm-hmm. it's like it shows you how it sets all that up to happen mm-hmm. and then it's just gone they they take out the the meat of the story mm-hmm. but I mean they do try they do try and f- try to fill that and try you very hard to, you know, to to put across that central that that central tension by overemphasizing the religious elements and the the the, uh, the question between religion and science, and that's played out mm-hmm. through the uh, question of the church, the you know, using the wood of the church. I, I've got no idea what Caleb's role in that was supposed to be. Um, no. I, I think he was uh, there to take his shirt off mm-hmm. to distract Anne. Uh-huh. And that's the... It's... See these... Uh, see if, if you'd taken these three actors and been doing a new version of The Quiet Earth. Uh-huh. That could have probably worked really well. Yeah, and I, I have to say, I, I did... When I, when I saw the cast... I kind of thought, I wonder if this is a, an adaptation of the same thing. I wonder if this is why Gil has has selected this. Um, they are quite similar. There are similarities there, definitely. Um, but 
But yeah, no, it's. Uh, I would definitely recommend the the eighty four version. I think there's a lot to recommend about the two thousand and fifteen version too. There wasn't really a a dud amongst these films this week, Gala. Yeah. I would say. Um, I would. My my main complaint, I suppose, of the two thousand and fifteen version is that it's 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 too slow, and I, I do. And it's shorter. And it, I, it's, it's only ninety minutes long. Yep. And yet it seems so much slower mm-hmm. than the 1984 version that's two hours long when you get to, and has so much more silence yeah, in it. And when you get to that final payoff between the two uh, kind of major characters at the end of the 84 version, it feels far more satisfying because it just feels like this is where we've been leading to the whole thing. And her uh, final goodbye to him is, and you never thanked me for looking after you, mm-hmm. which works because it it almost plays into his idea that she's in a way still childish and petty you know her final gripe to him is and you never said thanks <laughs> there we go uh-huh very very interesting cool okay um well guys thank you very much indeed for listening um as ever uh we always appreciate your feedback we can be found on itunes um or on stitcher if you if possible if you could leave a review on itunes that'd be most appreciated um if you would prefer to have you looked at that recently i don't know if we've had any reviews i don't think there's been any recently so no um Buck up your ideas, folks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, we've also got our Facebook page. Um, so that's Gillen Roscoe's Bodacious Horror Podcast on Twitter. I am at Bodacious Horror and Gil is... At Barack Obama. There we go. At Gil Rocketastic. Oh, there we go. Um, yeah, and aside from that... Um, you know, feel free to drop us a line um bodaciouscorror at gmail.com. Yep. Cool. Okay, guys. So with that, thank you very much indeed for listening. And once again, please don't have nightmares. Many thanks. Bye. <laughs> Bye. I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start a flame in your heart. In my heart I have but one desire, and that one is you, no other will do. I've lost all ambition for worldly acclaim. I just want to be the one you love. And with your admission that you feel the same, I'll have reached the goal I'm dreaming of. Believe me, I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start a flame in your heart. You 
I don't want to set the world on fire, honey. I love you too much. I just want to start a great big flame down in your heart. You see, way down inside of me, darling, I have only one desire. And that one desire is you. And I know nobody else ain't gonna do. I've lost all ambition for worldly acclaim. I just wanna be the one you love. And with your admission that you feel the same. I'll have reached the goal I'm dreaming of. Believe me, I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start a flame in your heart. 